Welcome to another edition of Anglican Unscripted, episode 660. I'm Kevin Coulson. I'm George Conger. Today is May 1st, 2021. All right, welcome to another program. Thanks for joining us. If you get a chance, please like this program on Facebook and YouTube. It helps spread the word. It's called free advertising in the social media world. If you get a chance, go to the comment section. The show does not stop when I click stop and upload. It stops when you guys stop talking about the episode on in the comment section. You guys, you, you are the probably the best theological commentators on the whole internet and we really appreciate that uh if you're not subscribed yet to our show please click the subscribe button on youtube and if you really don't want to sit and watch our faces every week twice a week we have a podcast and you can just listen to us in your car on your headset or whenever so george how's your week going oh it's been wonderful lots uh-huh. of great things uh, plenty of computer problems as we work our way through the lightning strike Apple, I have to say, is uh, really pleased with that company. Uh, the M1 Mini Mac that I bought in January was fried, and Apple replaced everything, completely every brand new machine. But my LG monitor was also fried, and that I've got to pay for, or the insurance company's got to pay the for. The insurance got to pay. Now, you and I have wonderful monitors. Uh, I have this widescreen 43-inch monitor, which really helps with being productive. And you got one, too. It helps with video production. It helps you have three different screens up when you're surfing the Internet or writing your sermons or doing all that type of thing. It's kind of, I think, desktops will be like this five years from now. Yeah, and the Mac One Mini only has one uh, video output, so you can't have multiple screens. And so this, this works really well with the M1 Mini. And as such, if I were to lose this to a lightning strike like you did, George, I would I would be lost. I'm just so used to being able to to, to pan across 43 inches of uh, video real estate here, and I I can't imagine. So hopefully you get a new one. You, you order it from uh, Best Buy, or we're gonna get it. I think B and H, uh, but I can't do it on Saturday because they're Jewish and they're closed. <laughs> they are but, closed. Uh, but uh, but so I'm coming to you from my uh, MacBook uh, 20, uh, 2010 MacBook, which was also fried, but I was able to buy. That's the great thing about the older MacBooks is that you can replace the components. And I just spent 200 bucks and bought a new logic board and upgraded to an SSD drive. Mm-hmm. And the thing's fantastic. But whereas the Mac Mini, man, you can't do anything to those things. They're, they're disposable, while the old MacBook is a tank. Uh, update with the Coulsons. Uh, since the first time, since I think 1991 or 92, we do not own a home. We uh, have no property that you can uh, tax property-wise. Uh, we sold the condo on the shore in Milford. It closed yesterday. Now we're just full-time living out of the RV, traveling at the speed a used RV will travel. Uh, we had a little... Oh, so- are you What's heading that? to California, you Oakies, now, and the dust clean the dust bowl? Yeah, we're going to go all the way out to California. No, we're headed up to New York this week. We're going to attend a, a wedding. It's a COVID wedding, George, because they had their wedding this time last year. 
Um, but nobody could show up because it was COVID time. So they're having a version two where they're already married, but you show up for the ceremony and the party afterwards and stuff like that. So we're going up for the same two people being technically already married, having the party. So that'll be fun. Yeah. That'll be fun. Yeah, surviving COVID where, where it, you're, it's. Is this up in New York State, is it? Or is that where you're headed? Yes, eventually? it's up in New York. Uh, I forget the exact town. It's within half an hour there because Joe would not want to drive any further than that for the wedding. And it'll be fun. We, we've done more KAOAs the last couple months than we did all last year. It's just buy stock. <laughs> you buy stock. <laughs> Let's move on to the news. Uh, out of New York is our first news story. The American Sisters of the Community of St. Mary, the Eastern Province, are suing the state of New York, which is kind of a cute story because I would love to sue the state of New York. They are uh, just a horrible uh, state government that likes to attack people of faith. And they've been doing it the entire time uh, Governor Cuomo has been in charge. And uh, it's time. So what's the update on the story, George? Well, the Sisters of Mary were in the news earlier in the month when they quit the Episcopal Church. They were part. Of, they were in the Diocese of Albany, I think, in Greenwich, New York, and joined the ACNA over the Bishop Love affair. Well, this has been an ongoing issue. They are one of the parties in the lawsuit against the uh, state of New York, and a writ of uh, certiorari was filed before the U.S. Supreme Court. The state of New York is demanding the Sisters of Mary and other ca and Catholic, Roman Catholic orders of nuns and the diocese of all Catholic dioceses. Uh, so it's a group suit. Provide health insurance that allows for abortion, birth control, and transgender surgeries. All things which the Sisters of Mary believe is incompatible with their Christian faith and witness. This has been litigated in various states again and again and has gone to the U.S. Supreme Court. Little Sisters of the Poor were, I think, is the Catholic order that took it to the Supreme Court once already. But, and one. And one. I mean, this was, this issue was won at the Supreme Court under Obamacare. Uh, it was also, uh, Bill Clinton had a little health package he put together uh, many years ago that affected uh, people of faith, and he lost that in uh, a couple of federal district courts. So it's the fact that they're, they're just replaying this again is mean. You're being mean to people of faith because the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do this. So any, any other taking up of this is just to be mean. Yeah, I mean, there's some state governments in particular, California and New York, that seem to have it in for religious organizations. Mm -hmm. There was a oral argument in a, another suit before the Supreme Court, I believe this week, where California is demanding to know the names of everybody who contributes to a not-for-profit. Correct. Well, the, uh, the, the, the respondents, religious groups, say, well, you can't trust the state of California because in the past, they have leaked the names of people who've given money, such as the uh, the uh, same-sex marriage coalitions. Uh, you know, who uh, people raising money to keep the law that marriage between a man and a woman. Well, it's it's vendors list. It's the donors list was uh, demanded by the government. The government got it, and then members of the California 
bureaucracy leaked it, Mm -hmm. leaked it to the media. So uh, this is where that fellow who was, uh, I think, was Firefox. He was one of the executives, one of the founders of Firefox, the uh, net, the internet browser company, uh, was basically forced out of his own company because he had donated money to uh, a a conservative religious group. Well, it was just a pro-family. I mean, his name is Blake Ross, and he wrote a check because uh, he writes out he was a, a rich person uh, who founded a tech company and gave to a pro-family uh, we're going to protect uh, marriage between a man and a woman uh, check was for like $200 and he was doxxed they gave out his address gave out who he was and for the the longest time he tried to hold on to his job um, and uh, just at one point he said it's just not worth it and he had to step down as the founder of Firefox, which is just ridiculous. Now, the Cal- in an oral argument, the state of California said, yes, we've screwed up in the past, but we'll do better. Mm-hmm. Now, when my children were five years old, uh, when they would say they would do better, I would say, okay, that's wonderful, but I still wouldn't trust them with the stuff to do wrong. <laughs> um, but so the Cal- the California, it's they're basically going after people. It, it's what they call lawfare, using the legal system to punish people with opposing political or religious or moral views. Mm-hmm. And state governments are doing it in California. They're doing it in New York. Um, they don't do it in Florida. Uh, <laughs> they don't. Well, or no, Fl- Texas. Florida has a, a really good governor and some good uh, state senators. I like the ones from uh, North Carolina, Georgia. You know, it, it, it's not all bad news all the time. I want to correct the name. It's Brendan Ike was the uh, co-founder of Firefox who was uh, kicked out and doxxed by the liberals for supporting same-sex marriage. It's... So pray for the Sisters of Mary and the other nuns who are fighting Governor Cuomo that uh, they not be compelled to buy the pill or pay for transgender surgery or subsidize abortions. George, for our next story, let's move back to Uganda. Last week we spoke about um, the repentance of Stanley Intigali uh, that was uh, done publicly in front of the House of Bishops, College of Bishops for the province, and we commented that that's the way it's supposed to be done. That um, when a person uh, does something that's damaging to their life, to the family life, to the church, um, to the church globally, you need to repent. And especially uh, when it's damaging to the church globally, you need to have a public confession. Nothing wrong with that. And he did that. And the New Testament calls for that. If you want to go to Timothy and, and other chapters, that you know a public confession of sin is redeeming not just to you but it's redeeming to the church and it's how god redeems a situation and having an archbishop of the anglican communion and an archbishop within gafcon have a marital affair is bad but this can be redeemed and it was by stanley and tagali however the culture there doesn't like to have their dirty laundry aired and we've heard rumors that you know this has kind of caused uh, some issues within the church and well uganda like america and britain has a a very voluptuous press and they're going wild with this Uh, because even though stanley uh, confessed and he repented and he was received back by the bishops of the church 
um, your repentance is not based on whether or not you will be forgiven. Your repentance is a single act. Whether or not you're forgiven, that's completely different. You are forgiven by God, but he was not forgiven by the husband. And boom, came the lawsuit. The This is a... Uh, there's an aphorism. No good deed goes unpunished. Sure. And this week we're seeing the consequences of that for the two archbishops, the current and former. Let me give you a little bit of background, uh, because Kevin and I unknowingly have been uh, participants in this story. The, the big... The, the reporting the of the story. <laughs> George, you got to be careful how you say that. We are participants in the reporting of the story. <laughs> Months before all this broke, uh, Kevin and I would receive notes from mission partners of Americans who were missionaries or mission partners in the Church of Uganda. Mm -hmm. They would come back from their mission trips or sp after three months or a week, whatever, and say, we've heard these stories that Stanley and Tagali has been having an affair with the wife of a priest. And, you know, you hear all sorts of stuff. Uh, but after a certain point, and when a person of a certain level of, of integrity tells you, not that the people weren't saying this, but a person who, you know, these guys are, this person is well plugged in. When it's been verified to our discretion, it's time to decide whether or not we're going to report. And we had discussions on this. At what point do we come forward and say, this is what we know? Well, we went to the people themselves. We didn't go to Archbishop Stanley. And we went to uh, Archbishop Samuel Kazimba and his staff at the uh, National Church office. And they said, yes, it's true, but we're putting out a statement. Wait for a few days and we'll give it to you. Just, that was just at the same time as the Uganda was going through its national elections. And the national elections caused the government to shut down the Internet because of social media. And here's a side little story. The Soros people, George Soros was and company, was pouring money into the Ugandan social media to basically cause trouble. Uh, and that was one of the reasons outside money was trying to swing the elections in Uganda. Mm -hmm. Well, during all this, so the Internet shut down, but not the phone lines. And over the facts comes the statement from Archbishop Kazimba saying that he has disciplined Archbishop Stanley for adultery. We published this statement without commentary that later that morning, uh, Archbishop uh, Foley Beach publishes a statement on behalf of the GAFCON movement. All hell broke loose in Uganda when the internet was turned back on because Anglican Inc., these foreigners, are telling stories about Stanley, our hero. Uganda has what is called a shame-honor culture, like they have in parts of Asia, where you do not embarrass the big man. Whatever he does, he could do be terrible things, but you don't say bad things about him in public to people outside the tribe, outside the, the circle of important people. And these two Americans pleasantly plump pink Americans are saying bad things about Stanley and people got mad at us but they even got madder at Archbishop Kazimba how could you embarrass us in front of strangers okay well that was a problem Stanley had to fight with because he had done the right thing 
And Stanley came back uh, in his conversations with people in the Church of Uganda saying, look, I know our culture says that we don't air our dirty linen with farmers. Uh, Kasimba said this. Kasimba said this. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Our culture said, but our culture cannot overpower the clear, unambiguous word of the Bible. Mm -hmm. That, you know, this is sin. It must be publicly confessed. Our leaders must be held to account. A bishop is a man of one wife, not a wife and a girlfriend, you know. And when we have these problems, these are the steps we need to take to clean it up and clear it up. And we need to have a path for Archbishop Stanley to get right with God, both with the God in his personal life and with the church and with the people he's offended. Go back. So that sort of satisfied people in the short run. Last week, they had the 60th anniversary of the Church of Uganda celebrations, and they started off on a Thursday night with the service they had a private meeting in the House of Bishops that afternoon. Then they had a public worship service. And Kevin and I got tickets to go, but uh, we didn't make it, unfortunately. But we should have gone, because, on, not on the agenda, uh, was uh, Archbishop Stanley asked permission to speak, and he got up from the pulpit three or four minutes, and you can see it on Facebook. It's a recorder on Facebook. Uh, on the Church of Uganda stream, he apologized to to God, to the Church of Uganda, to his family, and to the family of the uh, woman with whom he was having an affair. And I'm told by people present that you could you could have heard a pin drop. That this was the first time in modern history that a big man publicly apologized because in that culture asian culture and cultures around the world big man is beyond reproach you know we don't need you know listen i'm the king and i can have mistresses i'm the big guy i can do what i want and you can't ask questions here the big guy got down on his knees and said i'm sorry i repent what i did was wrong and i shamed myself my family the church and I'm sorry. You could have heard a pin drop here on earth, in kingdom, in the kingdom, and in heaven, you heard celebrations. A man had returned to the fold. I mean, and there were, uh, the response from the bishops in the Church of Uganda was to welcome him back into the fold. It was overwhelming joy. I mean, images of, uh, the, from the book of Daniel, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar eating grass and driven crazy, then coming back into into his right mind after he repents of his sin. Um, this is how Christianity works. That there are no there there are no tears of Christians, those whom we those who are uh, the regular people and the elite. I mean, all are one in Jesus Christ. And the Church and Archbishop Kazimba's point was that Christ, not culture, must lead our church. Mm -hmm. Well. No good deed goes unpunished. The uh, some of the gay activist groups uh, who have been picking on Uganda for years picked this up and said, "Aha! This shows what hypocrites the Ugandans are. That they'll tolerate adultery but not homosexuality. That they're all that secretly they're polygamists. Secretly they're this or that, and they just need to be uh, honest about this stuff. And they're hypocrites." 
And this also reignited the controversy of uh, why are you embarrassing us in public? And I don't want to say it's half-formed Christians because that's not a fair no, thing and yeah. it implies something. But there's some people who don't understand that uh, this is the way it was done, right. And one of the, the arguments that has come back is that in the United States and in England, we have church leaders who say, I myself do not believe that homosexuality is morally right, but our culture says it is. Therefore, therefore I, need to, I, yeah. theref I, I need to have some pastoral care for those with whom I disagree and not say anything that would upset them by saying this is wrong. In other words, the culture in the U.S. says that we don't condemn homosexuality as separating you from God. It's homosexual practice as separating you from God. The culture in Uganda says that you don't uh, call adultery out in big men and saying that separates the archbishop from God because it, it would embarrass us. Well, I also want and to... How can, and, and, but then Archbishop Kazimba goes on and says, how can now we stand, if we did not stand on this issue, how can we face the Episcopal Church and say you must repent and return to Christ mm -hmm. if we're not willing to do it where we have a failing of not having followed the Gospels we should? And the biggest contrast in, in this whole story is culture. Culture, in, especially here in the West, does not forgive. There is no forgiveness, and I hate to use the term again, in critical race theory. Sorry, every white sin is unforgivable. In Christianity, every sin is forgivable when confessed. Every one of them. There's not a list of, un well, there's the Holy Spirit grievance, but we'll cover that in a future topic. But there's no unforgivable sin, uh, except for the Holy Spirit grievance, in entirety of Scripture. So, thank God, a sadly common sin had to be confessed and forgiven by the church, by God, and the kingdom of heaven is rejoicing. And so are Kevin and George wasn't forgiven by the husband no. who after the public confession of sin before the bishops filed a $150,000 lawsuit civil lawsuit against Archbishop Stanley in Tagali for, for alienation of affections of his wife so Archbishop Stanley's public confession no good deed goes unpunished he's now got to it'll be settled I'm sure but the tabloids are having a field day with one priest suing his archbishop for $150,000 for alienation of affection. And then the commentators saying, how could you embarrass us again in front of these foreigners? So I, if, if any Ugandan should happen to watch this, I think you should take away that these two foreigners are saying the Church of Uganda is behaving as a model of Christian uh, witness yeah. and living not as a source of shame or embarrassment. You should be proud yeah. of this, not embarrassed by it. This is a good moment in the entirety of the Church of Uganda. This is a good moment in the entirety of uh, the history of Christendom. It was done right in the end. And uh, we, we appreciate it, and we thank you, Uganda, for what they've done. And, you know, continue to be a beacon. Con continue to be the salt and light, because 
uh, the culture wants you to fail. They want you not to repent. They want to call you hypocrites. And you are not. George, next story. I think we covered that one really well. Uh, this weekend, there will be elected a new Archbishop of Sydney. I am betting on the Dean of St. Andrew's Cathedral, Kanishka Raphael. Sure. We've met him. Well, probably I'm betting on him because I've met him. The other candidates <laughs> so are biased. some of the uh, area bishops in Sydney. Yeah. Um, why is this important? They're always Episcopal elections. Alan Hawkins of the eight was elected bishop coadjutor mm-hmm. of the uh, Steve Breedlove's diocese. Kevin, I'll, that's your diocese. Well, that's it? my diocese. We have a, a new coadjutor. Uh, uh, is he considered bishop-elect? I think it's bishop-elect until he's approved by the College of Bishops. Uh, it would be uh, Alan Hawkins, who goes way back to the, the Plano days and the uh, planting 1,000 churches days. So, uh, congratulations. Well, as we say, there are lots of elections, but why is Sydney's... Di- uh, Sydney has always uh, uh, punched above its weight, mm-hmm. uh, meaning it's more influential than a, mo- a regular diocese of its size would be. Sydney has always been, if you will, the standard bearer for the conservative evangelical movement. Not the conservative evangelical movement in party political terms, but would, it has been a source reformed for evangelical Africa, moment, yeah. reformed evangelical yeah. movement. Um, not everything that Sydney does, I mean, I've been influenced by it tremendously. I may not look like it, I wear a collar, I may not preach like it because I, I'm an American, I'm not a, an Australian. But it has had a tremendous influence. And the man, they're all men running, who will be elected Archbishop of Sydney is going to immediately find himself at the center stage of the international Anglican movement. And whoever they choose, uh, they've got a great number of choices, is going to step into the shoes of uh, Peter Jensen and Glenn Davies and be immediately one of the leaders of the... uh, Canterbury opposition. Sure, uh, the, the GAFCON movement, yeah. Uh, and Sydney has been a formational diocese within GAFCON. You know, they were there from the start. Uh, Peter Jensen certainly did a, a, a lot of work uh, in the early days. I think the head office of GAFCON was down in Sydney for uh, many years. So uh, the expectations, I hate to put a lot of pressure on the new archbishop because you're not the archbishop yet, but when you are, there's going to be a lot of expectations from you because uh, you are looked to as one of those uh, dioceses within GAFCON and within the entirety of the Anglican Communion that people look to when they see everything going wrong in the UK and everything going wrong here in the Episcopal Church. You know, you're, you're one of those hopeful places that they can turn to. Now, and just let's just play Anglican politics for a bit. This is inside baseball, folks. <laughs> Some of you love this. Stuff. It's a Some cricket. This, this is this is <laughs> the movement within the conservative uh, world of Anglicanism is we need to reform our structures, how we as Anglicans need it. Because right now, the Archbishop of Canterbury is the first among equals. He's the leader of the Anglican Communion. His authority comes not from God, but from the Queen through the Prime Minister, or the Prime Minister through the Queen. He's a political appointee. That may have worked at time of empire, and it may have worked with special individuals who had a tremendous charism 
of uh, leadership. What we see right now is it doesn't work, and it's not going to work. And there is a movement within the Anglican world to reform its structures, to have the Archbishop, not of Canterbury, because that's an English see, but have the leader of the Anglican world be elected from within the primates or whoever it might be, from the within the bishops. If you have a young Archbishop of Sydney who is uh, telegenic, intelligent, uh, charismatic, this moves that game forward tremendously. Because if you have a 65-year-old Archbishop who can only basically be there for three to five years, you, know, you don't want to do that. But if you have someone in their mid to late 50s standing up who can basically represent the best of the Anglican tradition, who is not white, who is non-European or American, but who has a, a high degree of theolog theological uh, education as well as moral integrity, you've got all the ingredients there for a coup against the old rotten structures. No, and your point is well taken. What exists now in the uh, the instruments of unity is ununity. There's it's completely disunified, and the so, old structures are keeping their power. They will they will fight to the death. Canterbury will fight to the death to keep Canterbury power. The uh, um, the focus power where it should be the primates have been completely uh, dethroned. They don't have any power in the church at all. So, see, also, I think it's very important to understand that I reject this theory that history is impersonal. It has nothing to do with great men and women. It's mm -hmm. the powers of the economy, of climate, and all this and that. Let's let's look at this closely. Who is the leader of Gafcon right now? It's Foley Beach. Mm -hmm. Foley Beach is a minority within the leadership of Gafcon. If it were pure politics, an African. Uh, would be the leader of Gafcon, just Peter Akinola was at one time. But the, within the Gafcon leadership, Foley Beach, who is younger than most of these others archbishops, uh, is rose to the top because of merit. Mm -hmm. And because of this merit, he has held the Gafcon movement together in a period of severe blows of disunity. And it's coming out of this past four or five year interlude of the uh, Welbyism much stronger than I think uh, it should be. Welby is the right... Uh, well, <laughs> Foley Beach is the right man at the right time in the right place and was chosen to lead GAFCON and to be one of the leaders of the Global South movement because of the inherent quality of his character and leadership. And that's what the Anglican world needs. And I think if whoever we get out of Sydney will be one of the prime contenders to be that person, mm -hmm. to lead us into a reformed, renewed, revived Anglican world. Next story. There's going to be a new gargoyle at the National Cathedral. We've teased before because Darth Catherine Vader... Jeffrey Shore, he's got <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. Well, if you want to really think of the character of Catherine Jeffrey Shorey and the character of Darth Vader, she's already there. Uh, yeah, you know, if people don't know, there's gargoyles that around the outside of the National Cathedral that were put there when it was built. One of those gargoyles happens to be Darth Vader. 
There are some other wonderful characters there from uh, the 70s and before, some historical characters. They're going to add a new one. Uh, one of my heroes from the, uh, the Holocaust, uh, Ellie Russell, is going to uh, be added. And I thought, you know, we could talk a little bit about that because um, it, this is the time we seem to be attacking some historical figures and uh, making them less than they should be. And he is one of those uh, people who are a writer, survived the Holocaust, he was orphaned by the Holocaust, and should be celebrated with a gargoyle at the National Cathedral. Ellie Wiesel, uh who died, I think, in 2014 uh, or I think 2016. Right. Yeah. Ellie Wiesel, as a teenager, was he and his father were swept up. Uh, he lived, in, I think, in Hungary or Romania. Uh, he was a Jew. His family were arrested. He and his father were sent to one camp. I believe his mother and sisters were right. all exterminated immediately. Mm-hmm. He survived the Holocaust. Um, miraculously uh, most of the Jews I think almost all the Jews of his hometown were killed and he became a writer and he wrote a novel Night and he has become an eloquent he was an eloquent voice for never forgetting the horrors that men can impose on other men mm-hmm. and he's being honored by the National Cathedral with his head added as a gargoyle or a sculpture or a bust on the facade yeah um, now we shouldn't say this is a kid you know Westminster Abbey they have uh, Martin Luther King and sure. uh, some other uh, fam- this is not sort of deification or being made a saint no no he no, is no, just no. He, he, and he, even though he's not a Christian he's a Jew mm-hmm. uh, Darth Vader I think he would be considered a Presbyterian but Presbyterian. <laughs> uh, this is a, basically a uh, a statement of, of moral good mm-hmm. and what's especially important I think these days especially in Europe especially with uh, friends I apologize but I'm gonna make a political statement the US government is appointing as an assistant secretary for uh, human affairs a component of the uh, uh, divest from Israel campaign which the Trump administration called uh, uh, anti-semitism we now have one of the leaders of that campaign now in charge of our human rights policies. And people are trying to pretend the Holocaust it wasn't as bad, it didn't happen. It picked on a lot of people, not just Jews. Mm-hmm. Friends, we really can never forget what happened. Um, and Ellie Wiesel is one of those people who will ground us forever if you read his books yeah. uh, about yeah. what truly happened to the evil that men can do. Yeah. Slaughterhouse-Five with Kurt Vonnegut. I mean, there's so many books that really detail and document what happened there uh, in documentary terms and fiction terms you know it is one of the saddest times in human history and you know what it can be repeated in a heartbeat we've seen uh, the destruction and the the genocide of man against man uh, time and again recently Rwanda and I'm sad to report I bet in the next 20 years we'll be reporting on it somewhere else again here in the world also Kevin we yeah, Kevin, we've already reported it's happening in Western China with the Uyghurs. That's right, absolutely. So it's happening right now. Yeah, man against so, man. So Ellie Wiesel's being immortalized in stone isn't some sort of PC thing that some people would 
what would suspect the Washington Cathedral. They do plenty of that anyway. <laughs> but this is a statement of which I think should be applauded and upheld and uh, good for that. Well, let's let's stay in that diocese, uh, and I'm going to jump two stories to get to that. Um, if people remember back when this all first started, there was uh, Bishop Peter Lee. I think he was Virginia. Uh, had some churches wanted to leave his diocese because they couldn't contend with what was happening in the the church at the time, and especially right after Gene Robinson. They said, "We want out. We we're going to find some place." And at the time, provinces in Uganda and provinces in Ken were, were authoring, offering uh, for churches to come under them. And a couple of people went to Bishop Peter can we buy our church out from you? He said, yeah, let's see what we can work out. And he worked out a deal or two. And then the lawyers at 815 and Catherine Jeffords Shorey said, no, we will not at all sell properties to what she called the opposition. And we went through a period, 12, 13, 14, 15 years of lawsuits at the diocesan level, at the uh, province level, at the um, within churches, at the church level for the last 15 years, having this uh, legal divorce. How do we take our property, take what the the people who founded this church building uh, wanted and, and take that out of the Episcopal Church? We're now to the point where we're seeing that even liberal bishops are willing to negotiate. Catherine Jefford Shorey is out of power, and there seems to be this this infinity with okay already whatever. Let's let's talk this out. We now have a, a happy story out of the diocese of Washington, where a church is taking its property and buying it from the uh, the diocese, George. Even before all the things you mentioned was the story of Sam Edwards, Gene Dixon, and Akikam. That's right. Jane Dixon. Jane Dixon. Jane Dixon is the astrologer. (laughs) Jane Dixon. Jane Dixon, yeah. Jane Dixon was the interim bishop in Washington. She was a suffragan. The bishop had retired. Mm -hmm. And this little conservative parish south of Washington on the Maryland uh, Peninsula uh, called an Anglo-Catholic named Sam Edwards to be the parish priest. Sam was, I think, one of the heads or leaders of Forward in Faith at the time. And the uh, parish signed the chat. Everything was done, and then Jane Dixon objected afterwards because Sam wouldn't bow at her idol. And then began a lawsuit where Akikik, uh, you know, wanted to have Sam, and the, and the, the interim bishop said no, and back and forth, and it was one of the first battles that uh, got national attention of uh, over these issues. Well, eventually, it settled down. Sam Edwards left the Episcopal Church, and Akakik, the parish, stayed. Still remained conservative, and 20-odd years later, might be 20 years, I'm not sure That's how long. easily 20 years, years yeah. Later, uh, Akakik has worked to buy out, and this past week, uh, Diocese of Washington had a c- convention online, and one of the statements released in the, during the convention was uh, Bishop Marion Edgar Buddy's uh, letter about Akakik, where a deal had been made uh, where the congregation uh, would purchase the property and affiliate with a church not in communion with the Diocese of Washington. 
That's weird. Um, how, how would you say that? Well, basically, you're saying it could be the ACNA. Yeah. It could be any of the continuing churches. Um, yeah. could be the Catholic Church. I, I don't think so. I don't think it's the wrong Catholic Church. Uh, yeah. But that she has done this after an amicable discussion. At the same... Now, that's basically saying to Jane Dixon, you just did this out of spite 15 years ago, which was why Jane Dixon did this. She was a horrible bishop. Um, Barry Necker Buddy is a bit of a... She's one of these people that I bury my head in my hands when I see her on the TV doing national politics. Polit she she's <laughs> she, when we had the uh, riots outside the White House mm -hmm. uh, and St. John's uh, Lafayette Square was vandalized and President Trump had the photo opportunity holding the Bible in front of St. John's. She came out the next day saying, this is not your church, Mr. President. It's my church. My church. I, I don't want it to be used as political props. So, you know. She's part of the liberal chattering classes, but she's no fool. Yeah. And for years, she has been saying, look, we've got to do something because the liberal progressive agenda is not filling our churches. She said that at a general convention, I think, you know, almost yeah. five, six years ago. She got up and said, or no, it was a college of Bish house of bishops, meaning uh, this liberal thing isn't working. Yeah. And she, and what I says, Washington has been hemorrhaging money. Uh, they have some powerhouse churches in the cathedral that are very influential, very wealthy, and but they have been subsidizing little country parishes, the inner city parishes. Uh, but Washington, as a place, is a horrible place to live. I mean, it's turning into Camden, New Jersey, or or East St. Louis or Gary, Indiana. It's just a joke, and crime and this and that. And people are moving out of Washington. And they're not driving through the through the badlands to go to church there on Sunday. They're or on the interstate at 5 p.m. No. Yeah. <laughs> and so it has the national uh, natural demographic decline of an inner city collapsing. Plus, it has all the wars of the Episcopal Church wars, and she has uh, worked out a deal basically to provide a source of income for a parish that they basically can live without quite happily mm -hmm. uh it's not one of the flagship parishes it's no. in the back and beyond uh, at the same convention they passed a resolution authorizing the creation of a commission that will allow parishes to be in essence dissolved against their will if they're not making it financially so some of these parishes that uh, need to be closed just out of sheer economics the bishop cannot close them now, being the Episcopal Church, they also put in little words such as that if you're not uh, active in the life of the diocese or uh, if you're not in conformity with the canons of constitution, so in other words, uh, for political reasons, they can also shut you down. But that's not where the discussion was. But I can see where that will be used if you've got a bad bishop in the future uh, well, to hammer people. Yeah, but they're, I... they're, they're consolidating and they're going to be liquidating congregations to... to uh, make sure the National Cathedral can still put up busts of uh, gargoyle heads. Well, and, but here's the, the contrast to all that. You know, the diocese did well in this case, and the, the bishop made a good decision. But boy, if the vestry of the National Cathedral got together and said, we're going ACNA, I think there would be a bit of a fight <laughs> on the hands. That's not going to happen. <laughs> no, it's not going <laughs> to happen. 
Well, for PR purposes, it's not that wouldn't be for spite. That would be for PR purposes. PR, uh, absolutely. Who wants the national cathedral? You don't want to lose something called the national cathedral. It would be a disaster. Yeah. Uh, Quick last story. Um, Advent Cathedral Dean steps down, Birmingham, Alabama. We don't know the details, Mm -hmm. but uh, I want to get his name right. Andrew Andrew Pearson. Pearson, the dean of the Cathedral of the Advent in Birmingham, which is a big parish, one of the communion partner parishes, Mm -hmm. powerhouses, meaning it's on the conservative wing of the Episcopal Church, but not too conservative, uh, uh, has announced that he is leaving. Well, actually, his wardens announced. His wardens put the letter out, yeah. The wardens, he hasn't released a public letter that I've seen. He may have, but I haven't seen it yet. Mm -hmm. The wardens put out a letter saying that after consultation uh, with the bishop, the new bishop, uh, he is uh, stepping down because he can't go where the Episcopal Church is going. And the wardens went on to say that uh, we've been in talks with our new bishop and she'll allow us to preserve the character and integrity of the parish against this sort of national flow. So the wardens are writing to the congregation to say, don't worry, uh, he's jumping ship. We're not yet. We're not. We're not. Uh, you can still trust us. <laughs> So I don't know the details of why. Um, It'll come out. It always does. And yeah, it's one of those difficult things. Uh, A lot of people are able to stay within the Episcopal Church and have successful, fruitful ministries. A lot of people just get frustrated and say, uh, my ministry would be more fruitful elsewhere. And um, I could reach more people in in a different situation. And some people left a long time ago. Interesting fact, George. Yeah, and people say, you know, who started the ACNA? Well, you know, I'm going to be honest with you here. It was started by Catherine Jefford Shorey. Yes, she's the okay. greatest church planner of the last generation. You know, and it was it was the unwillingness to do what uh, the Diocese of Washington just did. Um, that allowed for just this tw- 15 years of complete poor witness of the kingdom to the, the uh, viewers and citizens here of America. At or, the dot, or what the new Bishop of Alabama just did by saying, okay, Advent, you can still remain faithful. We won't force you to perform gay marriages. We won't force you to worship the uh, altar of Balak. A bail. Bail, um, bail. <laughs> but I think for many, Bishop Love is the last straw. And yeah, we're hearing lots of rumors about defections mm-hmm. from Albany. Mm-hmm. Um, there are rumors right now. Yeah. Uh, the only only concrete example that I can name has been the Sisters of Mary, who we spoke about at the beginning of the show. Mm-hmm. But the uh, there's a great deal of uh, emotion and sadness and i don't want to say despair but it's getting close to that but what's happening in that part of the world all right guys you made it to the end of the show congratulations please go to the comment section and give us your comments and uh kevin but kevin yeah. can, I, can i just can we just i do want sure. yes not indian corruption i promise you <laughs> oh no we discussed at length the post office story in england i think we should say why we're not Ye- really getting into this do you yeah. mind uh, sure. Well, first, for people in America and the rest of the world, uh, 
there was a software installed back in 1999 that managed the accounting of the post office in the UK. The software, and here again, 1999, pre-Y2K, that long ago, was That's running... That's how you made your first million, wasn't it, Kevin? <laughs> and so was operating the uh, the accounting for the post office in the UK. And it was full of bugs. People were... Char- Postmasters were charged because the accounting in their uh, post offices weren't adding up. Some of those postmasters went to jail. The person who installed that software and oversaw that software and was in charge of the whole system at the time uh, retired with a huge five million pound pension and went on to become, in, in typical terms, what you do in England, a priest. We don't really need to cover the story because there's not really a a really good angle for unscripted to cover this. I don't think. What do you think, George? Well, no. Uh, this, if she was a priest during this time, that would be one thing. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if she had a life conversion or if this was just a hobby. Sure. And so, yes, it's a sad, it's a terrible story of a little guy being screwed once again by the system, and the person's the clamping down and tightening those screws uh, is a parish priest of the Church of England. She's since stepped down and stepped away. But it's it's a stretch for, it's a bit of a stretch for us to go into that. It is. Now, I, as an IT expert, I could talk about Windows 98 of the time, which is replacing Windows 95, the first for, you know, it's just so... Yes, there's angles, but there's not really a good angle for Anglican Unscripted. Please go to the comment section. Hey, what was the first operating system you used on your computer? Put that in the comments. That'd be fun to, to read about. I'm Kevin Coulson. And I'm George Conger. And you've been watching episode 660 of Anglican Unscripted. Now, the, the one person who made it this far is going to write <laughs> their operating system. <laughs> <laughs>